and welcome to this latest Howden podcast. I'm Matthew Gregson, Executive Director here at Howden, responsible for the teams that look after our corporate, our large clients. And I'm delighted to be joined today by Josh Hayes, the Senior Pensions and Financial Wellbeing Consultant. Hi, Josh. Hi, Matthew. Great to have you with me. Now, on this latest podcast, we are reflecting on Pensions Awareness Week, 11th to 15th of September, and a message from the industry, which is about a decade of difference. I don't know, that feels very self-congratulatory, doesn't it? I think, you know, the industry has driven hugely positive change. But I think to our audience today, Josh, one of the things I want to reflect on is probably that we've achieved the minimum that we needed to, right, in order to get more people into a pension. But for me, the big thing that I'd like you and I to discuss today is why we're still in a position that too many employers aren't successfully engaging their employees in saving properly and adequately for retirement. And why that actually, although we've taken millions of new people into retirement saving in the last decade, there's still a huge amount to be done. What I'd love is um, maybe for our audience, if you could just set out first, how you see that landscape and the difference between what has been achieved in the decade versus actually what great looks like and the gap that we still need to close. You've hit some really good points in there, I think. And, and ultimately, we've seen automatic enrolment have an effect. That's, that's undeniable. You know, ultimately, with more than, I think it's 10 million more savers towards pensions now than ever before automatic enrolment. So naturally, we can't deny that it's had a huge impact. But I think we really have to look at the levels of contribution funding. Obviously, the government have gone through the process of phasing. So, you know, embedding people into getting into the habit of saving towards their pension. But ultimately, if we looked at adequacy and the automatic enrollment minimum levels, you know, with the research that's, that's been done by the likes of the Pensions and Lifetime Savings Association to create the retirement living standards, the work that Scottish Widows did on their research to, to kind of work that back to what does that mean from a contribution level, which as we know is around 125 to 15% that people need to be saving if they're starting in their 20s, is that actually that's a pretty significant gap if you're looking at businesses that are, they may have a, an 8% total minimum that needs to go into the pension. And if we look at research, the vast majority of pension savers are, are at or close to those automatic enrollment minimum levels. So actually there's a, a huge discrepancy between automatic enrollment minimums and what's being de deemed through the research as retirement adequacy. So we're looking at a, around a 4.5% gap for individuals to save towards their retirement adequately. Ultimately, I think that role then perhaps at the moment really needs to come from the employers. Now, if your organisation is going to be different, you know, we're going to see many businesses have different requirements when it comes to their contribution structure. You know, we're going to be looking at it from the point of view of, Obviously, and all organisations need to be compliant with the minimum levels. But actually, I think from our perspective and working with organisations that want to help people save towards an adequate retirement and they want to attract and retain top talent, the reality is, is that, quite frankly, the automatic minimum levels of contributions are just not good enough anymore. No, I, I quite agree with you. And I think one of the huge challenges is that in introducing automatic enrolment, I don't think we made it clear to the average saver, the average employee, that 8% probably isn't enough, right? We've got them into a position where they've gone, this is great. Uh, you know, someone's, someone's done the thinking for me 
the money just comes out of my pay. I, I don't even see it. And then great. I'm not even going to think about it again. But we're in a position where we know funding is a very expensive thing. Right. And we know that ultimately there are two ways that employers can solve this problem. They're not mutually exclusive, but we can we can pay in more money or we can better educate and inform and get employees making better decisions. I think one of the things I'd love to touch on is 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 how on earth do we get that balance right? Because in my mind, I'm thinking, you know, it's Pensions Awareness Week. Let's all encourage ourselves, HR and reward professionals, businesses to get employees taking action. But in reality, if they need 12.5% of their salary going in and only 3% is coming from the business, I, we can't necessarily solve it through education alone, right? We're not going to get employees putting in 9.5% of their pay to bridge that gap. So how how do you see it, right? We've, we can solve this through funding. We can solve it through education. How would you ask employers to kind of get that right balance and reflect on, well, what should we be paying in versus how much should we be saying this is about helping employees make better choices? Yeah, I t- totally agree with that. I think the points that you've made are really key. The two standouts from the kind of prefix to that is that ultimately, if we look at those two key outcomes, we're looking at the benefit to the member and the cost of the business. So if we combine all of that together, the two options that you've pointed out in terms of funding versus communication, I think realistically, the answer is both. And if we're looking at them separately, first of all, if we look at the funding levels, naturally, we want to try and help employees get to as close to those retirement adequacy levels as possible. But for a lot of organisations, that's simply not going to be possible. Obviously, we're in the middle of a cost of living crisis at the moment. So for both businesses and individual employees, putting that money aside is going to have a pretty substantial cost implication on both the business and the individual. But it needs to be reviewed in line with, well, how does that compare with our market? You know, as an organisation in an industry, how do we sit compared to that industry? It's all well and good looking at averages across the UK, but Ultimately, we want to make sure that to attract and retain the talent that we want and need, that we're comparing appropriately to those organisations, whilst factoring in that we might have employees that are struggling to afford to save at those levels. So I think there's a balance between offering the levels of funding to employees, whether that's through a higher match contribution structure or you know a scale, but then actually combining that with the support through education and communication so that people really do understand the impact that this can potentially have on their future, the need to save for retirement, and also the benefits of saving towards their retirement through things like the tax relief. If the organisations, which a lot of the organisations we're working with now do have salary exchange in place, ultimately the benefits to them to save towards the future, combined with the option from increased funding from the employer, can have a really significant impact. And we've seen that with with a number of clients. Yeah, I think that's very fair. So let's try and get down to brass tacks on it right? What are the type of numbers? We know that 3% from the employer is the minimum. We know that we've got to get employees towards something like 12.5%. Give give our audience a sense of what what's the ballpark number that you think needs to be funded in order to drive both adequacy and competitiveness? I mean, are we talking, you know, 5% you see 
and which sectors are we pushing beyond that? And the employer might be doing six, seven, eight. Like, what looks like a better kind of benchmark to reach than than three percent? Yeah. So I think there's a couple of things there. If we looked at it from the point of view of comparing against our peers and competitors, that's one benchmark that organisations might look at and might need to to refer to. But actually, that goes hand in hand with with adequacy and the ethos of the business. So if the business truly wants to help people save towards retirement and support their employees, then they might be going above their market average in order to to be that organization that truly does support. I think if we're trying to put actual numbers on it, I think from a, a minimum level, I think what we're seeing is that many organizations still do remain that they offer an option at the lowest levels possible. So let's say, for example, they're on the set two basis for automatic enrollment certification, and they've got a total of 8% minimum with at least 3% coming from the employer. What we tend to see is that option still remains, but actually there's a scale for employees to either choose to opt up to, or actually we're starting to see the evolution of, you know, apathy and pensions as it always has been with automatic enrollment, as we mentioned earlier. But then also with most things to do with pensions, apathy is both its biggest success and its biggest downfall. So ultimately, if we're enrolling people at the lower levels, as we know, engagement levels are typically low when it comes to benefits and pensions. And ultimately, if we enroll people at that level, the likelihood is they're not going to make a decision. Similarly, when we invest people into pensions, they go into a default fund. And as we know, about 95% of people invest in the default fund because people tend not to take an action. But actually, if we move on beyond that, what we're starting to see is some organizations do it the other way around, where they're saying, let's enroll them at the higher level, but give them the flexibility, given the cost of living crisis, to actually opt down if affordability is an issue. So you're really ticking all of those boxes in terms of it's competitive for recruitment and retention. It's appropriate for the market that we operate in. But it's also ensuring that it's helping people to save towards an adequate retirement and it's appropriate to help cater for everybody. You know, what we don't want to do is start increasing the contribution levels up to a point where that's the only option available at, say, a, a seven and seven or an eight and eight. And actually, there's a good chunk of your workforce that simply can't afford that. So it's about getting that balance right between the long term outcomes and also getting people on that journey as it automatic enrollment has done. Yeah, I think you raise a really good point about saying, you know, could employers and should employers be braver at actually opting people in at higher rates rather than opting them in at the minimum and then hoping that they're going to increase? I think one of the things that strikes me, and I'd welcome your take on this, I know you've got a couple of client examples, is there's a big question of why employers want to do this, right? They're compelled to put in 3%, but where's the value for the employer of doing maybe five or six or seven? And it seems to me that whenever we survey employees, pension comes out as probably the most expected and also the most valued benefit, right? So, you know, the stats, I think, tend to tell us that employees appreciate pensions in the majority ahead of any other benefit. I don't know what you've seen with your clients, but it seems to me that understanding that business case and understanding what motivates employees and whether or not if they put more money into the pension, it's going to be genuinely appreciated or they're going to get something back. You as I, as as professionals in this space, we think it's a no brainer. But what have you actually seen with clients? Where's the resistance? Where's where's the nervousness that paying in more isn't going to differentiate them, is it going to get more? And where have you seen the success? Where have you seen clients either take that risk or take that opportunity, pay in more and see it pay off? 
I think the best example of this was an organization that already had a matching scale of contributions. So they already met the kind of adequacy level. So they had a matching scale up to seven and seven. But what they found when we did the data analytics was that actually the vast majority of people, where they'd been enrolled at the, the four and four level, had actually stayed at that level. You might have seen a few people that might have opted up at some point during their career, but actually you weren't seeing that much engagement. But when we started to look at what sort of levels of communication, engagement, education and understanding had we seen, the reality was there wasn't much that had been done. So the first case was through the governance. We obviously worked with the organisation to help them understand that there's a few points that you need to be aware of. So going back to the competitiveness point, we, you know, working with other businesses in your industry, we're seeing that actually the automatic enrolment minimum levels are not a, a level that's appropriate for organisations like you as a specific organisation. If we looked at the average contributions, what we were starting to see is that the average in that particular industry was around 7-8% from the employer. That could have been through to higher matching or it might have been that actually the employers were contributing more than the employees. So for this particular business, they looked at it from the point of view of, well, we appreciate that, but there's going to be a pretty significant cost if people start to opt up to those higher levels. So actually, even just through education alone, we saw the organisation try and use the education piece to use that as the business case to drive change for the future, to potentially further increase the, the opt-up opt match level. So actually by doing that and using that as the business case, we found that through working with those employees from a presentation and one-to-one -one perspective, helping them understand what a good pot looks like and what adequacy looks like, is that actually 25% of the workforce, so there's around 800 people in this organization, 25% of the workforce increased their contributions by an average of more than 2%. And that wasn't just people that were already at the higher levels, it, we were seeing that consistently. So people were uh, taking advantage of the increased contributions from the employer as well. So ultimately, the business then used that to further increase the match contribution scale because they could see that even in the midst of a cost of living crisis, people were deciding themselves to increase their contributions to the pension scheme. And then I think if we combine that with what we're seeing from the research again that we did with Reba early in the year, is that actually employers are starting to take note. We've seen that I think it was 64% of employers plan to increase their benefits funding over the next year. So actually, pensions is probably staking a pretty good claim to be quite key to that in that employees value it. It helps the business in the long term because ultimately, from a business perspective, they need to ensure that people can actually afford to retire. So, you know, I think as we go forward, we're going to only see more organisations start to review their contribution structure and move further away from those automatic enrollment minimum levels. Do you know what? You raised a really important point with this. And look, I think I think we've got to help our audience understand what this all means and how to act. And I'd love your view on something I think you've just said with that case study. Right. We've talked about there are two things employers can do, right? They can increase funding, which is very expensive, or they can improve education. Now, Ideally, you'd do both, and there's a bit of a chicken and egg argument to these things, I think. But really, what I think you're saying with that example is do the education first, see if your employees really value it, buy into it, if they take action, right? So it's Pensions Awareness Week. Let's say our first job is improve education and awareness, and then if that delivers the results that we believe it would for most employees, then that gives you your business skills to say, 
well, it really does look like maybe I need to improve the funding because people are, you know, acting on it. People are making positive decisions. That's clearly evidence of its value to the employee. Therefore, I should then look to solve probably the bigger challenge of how much we pay in. It seems like for our audience, uh, I don't know if, if you'd agree, but it seems to me that if they're going to work out, well, great, Matthew, Josh, but what the hell do I do? It seems like you'd say, well, educate, engage, help them understand what good looks like. And if they take action, then that validates the fact that it's a value and meaning to the employee. So then ask yourself whether or not we can afford to improve the funding. Spot on. I think you've hit the nail on the head. Ultimately, if we looked at it from the perspective that a lot of these organisations now will actually already have a a higher scale for members to choose to to get more from the employer anyway, is that to some extent those costs are most likely going to be baked in somewhere in the fact that if somebody's got a matching scale up to a certain point, at any point, all of the employees in the workforce in a, you know, a unicorn world could decide randomly to just opt up to that higher level anyway. So if that's already something that, you know, is permitted and is allowed within the business, then it's really down to that communication piece. It might not actually need further change to the design. So actually, if you get the education piece right in the first place, then ultimately you can start to see if members do benefit and do take advantage of that. Let's talk about some of the some of the traps or some of the pitfalls, perhaps, because you've talked a lot today about this adequacy level, right? This rule of thumb idea of if we could get people paid in 12.5%. And then we've talked about what feels competitive and what employers should fund. One of the things that I'm really mindful of is even employers who are fortunate enough, have deep enough pockets, or maybe you're just competing with talent enough to be paying in eight, nine, 10% non-contributory. Even then, one of the big pitfalls that I see is they is employees think, well, the company's got this for me. They're funding it. I don't even need to think about it. And how many times I've seen that employers with non-contributory pensions then end up with people who are still two and a half, three, four percent away from adequacy. Right. I, I wonder, because again, right, there's, there's this big challenge of can employers genuinely afford to fund more and how do they know whether it's the right thing? But where else do you see challenges with this? Like I say, a big one I often see is employers think that they can solve this problem purely through funding, 10% non-contributory perhaps, so they still end up with a 2.5% gap because their employees check out of the process, right? They go, well, employer X, Y, and Z's got this for me. What what issues like that do you tend to see? I know that you speak to a huge number of employees about both retirement and financial well-being. Are there certain traps that either the employer or the employee falls into that stops them from doing more? Yeah, that would ultimately be one of the biggest ones, the complacency. So whether it's the assumption that automatic enrolment levels or if they've got a non-contributory pension scheme, that it goes back to that kind of, kind of old-fashioned, in a way, kind of more paternalistic approach has almost led to that complacency in some respects where it's just looking back to say, well, actually, the business is looking after me, when in actual fact, that's probably not the case to the full extent. Whilst, don't get me wrong, a 10% non-contributory is extremely generous and a valuable benefit. And if you're comparing against peers, then obviously a 10% contribution is always going to stand out. But actually, if you're starting to measure it from an outcome perspective, the likelihood is if you, if you were to compare contribution levels from employees to organisations with other types of contribution structure, is you'd likely see far fewer members contributing, one, at all, and two, to a level that actually gets them 
to, to any form of adequacy. So that would be one. The next one is also reading too much into the wrong sources of information and data. You know, we, we live in a world now where there's so much information that's so readily available. Having a trusted source can be difficult. And sometimes what we see is people get into a position where, again, it's almost a complacency or it can be kind of the fear mongering, you know, that as our press is in the UK, loves to instill fear into everybody. And ultimately what that can sometimes do is drive people further away. You know, I think we've talked about it before in terms of at the start of the pandemic and the cost of living crisis in terms of what the what was going to happen to pension contributions and, you know, people going to need to, to change the contributions to put money on the table today when actually none of the research showed that that, that was happening. So I think it's a case of complacency, wrong information, and also in some, some examples kind of an over-expectation or an over-assumption of what they've done and what they've what they've achieved so far because they're not basing it on necessarily research and information it's just you know I, I contribute to this level so therefore I must be doing right and so rather than looking into it any further or using the tools that might be available from a provider or from the the industry they effectively just just assume that they're going to be fine and therefore have, again it's almost a complacency yeah I, I entirely agree with you and I think I think the question is, and I, I'm mindful to probably get your your closing thoughts, is it's Pensions Awareness Week. We want employers to have a sense of what they can do. For me, it seems like sometimes we're not brave enough to actually really spell out for members, for employees, what it takes to get a great outcome. It seems, to, to your point about, say, what's in the press or or fear of engaging with it, it seems to me we actually need to go to the other end of the spectrum and always take the emotion out of it and get people just building a good habit of seeing that actually when you've got tax relief and salary sacrifice savings and the employer contribution, actually tiny amounts of money coming out of my paycheck each month are adding up to a big pot over the long term. That being the case, what what would your closing thoughts be? Right, We've talked about that there's a contribution gap to solve, no doubt. It's incredibly unfair to put that all onto the employee. But what are the two or three things perhaps that you would say to employers that start doing this differently when it comes to engagement, when it comes to communicating with members as our first board of call? What are the two or three things you'd implore them to do differently from next week onwards to say, right, you know, yes, in an ideal world, you might pay in more. But ultimately, these are the tiny things you can do that start to build the better habits amongst members and drive a better outcome. Yeah, I think first and foremost, we fully appreciate the world that we're living in right now. You know, saying to a business that you need to be putting in 4% more to their pension isn't going to happen overnight. That's a big project that needs to be done. So in terms of kind of smaller next steps that organisations can look at, I think it is very much focused on that engagement and education side of things. So first of all, organizations shouldn't panic in terms of they're not going to be alone with this. We saw through our research that actually only 9% of employers felt that they were communicating their benefits effectively. So by no means are you going to be alone in terms of having to start to make perhaps a change and, and review the way in which you operate. But I think the first stage is that it shouldn't just be looked at as a one-off exercise. Whenever we're talking about education, communication, with anything to do with pensions or financial well-being more broadly is that actually one of the biggest bits of feedback we get is, you know, oh, I never knew that before, or I didn't realise that benefit was there, or I didn't realise that's how salary exchange work. So I think the first stage is getting people engaged, 
to then build on that to form education. So I think over time, it's about the employer becoming that trusted voice. We always get lots of feedback whenever we do anything kind of employee focused that, you know, why, why don't we get told this more often? You know, why wasn't I sh- told these things at school? Why wasn't I, you know, given this education? Why don't the government do something about it on, on a more generalized basis? And the reality is that nobody's going to do anything for you when it comes to the education communication. So actually from an employer's perspective, it's a real opportunity to become that trusted voice. All of the spend that they make on benefits, all of the spend that they, they put towards recruiting and retaining talent, actually all of that funding can kind of go amiss if they're not communicating effectively. So I think the first steps are really to start building the engagement with the workforce. Now that might be, depending on that workforce, the themes and the topics within that might be different. And as we've seen through lots of different research is that actually if you help people feel better and help them manage their money in the short term more effectively, is that actually it gives them a much greater confidence for their finances for the future. So I think as we go forward, if we can combine pensions, education and communication as part of the much larger financial wellbeing picture, you're really going to start to see some really effective outcomes by making sure that it's relevant to people as they go through their career and their life at the right times for them. And you can kind of almost then segregate those communications to the people that it's most appropriate for. Again, we might have workforces that have different types of employees within the workforce that have very different types of earnings. So actually the communications might be very different, but we want to make sure that the communications are timely, relevant, and also going to add value to those individuals at the right time for them. Josh, thank you for that. I, you know, the big takeaway for me and the one thing I'd implore audits to consider from what you said is the idea that pensions aren't separate or they're not a barrier to my financial well-being, right? It's a balance. It's an understanding of the decisions I make, the trade-offs, right? When when can I afford to pay more? When might I need to dial it down for a bit? How am I reassured that building for a better financial future isn't something that should be seen as a significant sacrifice versus what I need today. And I think you're right, but contextualizing it for different people and where they're at in their own journeys within that context of it's just part of my overall financial well-being as opposed to a barrier or a challenge to it, I think is, is a very fresh new kind of context to sit pension savings within. Um, I'm super mindful of time. Josh, as always, your insights and expertise are greatly appreciated. I'm going to call it there. Thank you ever so much for joining me today. And uh, once again, to our listeners, get out there. Pensions Awareness Week. Let's talk to our people. If we can't solve the funding gap, then let's solve the education gap and help employees make better decisions. Thank you ever so much. And we'll speak to you again soon. (music) 